If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this on Friday, February 8th. <laughs> as soon as we're done, Drew's packing a suitcase and heading for places unknown. That's right. I just need to get as far away from you as possible, Jim. That's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> well, you know, given that I live in the woods of New Hampshire, where, where exactly are you planning on going? That's true. But what's cool is that, what, just last night... You got to see How to Train Your Dragon, uh, Hidden World. I did. And then today at the Junket, you got to sit down with various folks associated with this, including director Dean Dubois. Yeah, I did. Without giving too much away, does it live up to the hype? Or It, it is a wonderful cap. I wasn't crazy about the movie as a whole mm-hmm. as the other two, but the last about 15 minutes or so, you will just be choking back. Uh, the tears oh. yeah and uh, there are some really beautiful sequences in it mm-hmm. you know there's like some moments where the the two dragons are kind of like courting each other that's mm-hmm. like wordless and just beautiful and, and right out of like Fantasia or something mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of kind of wheel spinning and, and a lot of plot machinations that will remind you of the last movie but they set up this movie in the very at the very beginning of the last one about how this was a place that used to have dragons and so Mm -hmm. how do you get there and how does that go that's really the the interesting thing is they kind of they made some really interesting um choices in terms of how to get to that moment that we've you know been waiting for since the very first movie i know you get to talk with dean about this but i i love the story of how How to Train Your Dragon, the original one, came together. DreamWorks acquires the film rights to the Crested Cowell books back in about 2004. And initially, it's Peter Hastings who's the director on this thing. And Peter, he was the story editor on Animaniacs. He was the story editor on Pinky and the Brain. Because those were smart, funny shows Pete was giving some amazing opportunities very early on. I mean, for example, Disney actually invited him to come direct a live-action film for it. The downside is the live-action film he got to direct was The Country Bears. Wow. By the way, Nancy and I were not only on the set, but you can actually see Nancy in this movie. Really? Yes. I, on the other hand, my giant forehead makes a cameo. Because as I was watching this thing being made, it's like, God, this is a terrible movie. And it's just sort of like, I, I really don't want to be on camera. So I, I you know, would always drift to the back of the crowds. It's, it's the concert scene at the end, but there's one shot of the crowd and there looming in the background is my giant beluga whale-sized forehead. So... <laughs> Wow. If, uh, well, I'm just mad because you're now you're giving me a reason to rewatch uh, the Country Bears. <laughs> Trust me, there is no good reason to watch the Country Bears. But I'll tell you what, I'll do a frame grab and send it. I'll save you 90 minutes of yes, your life. Yes, so. please do. Please do. Okay, so anyway, in this version, though, he sticks really close to the original book. So, for example, Hiccup in this version is just 10 years old. And Toothless isn't a night fury. He's actually a common or, or as they call garden, I guess, a garden variety dragon, which, which is about the size of a dachshund. And by the way, you can actually see the original versions 
of Hastings take on these characters in the original How to Train Your Dragon. There's a, do you remember that scene where after they've flown Hiccup and Toothless land on like a rock and he, he pours out a basket of fish and Hiccup is, or, or Toothless is sort of bolting down all this food and this, uh-huh. this group of four or five little dragons land and sort yes. of start pestering for the food. The one that grabs the fish and drags it away, that's the original Toothless. And okay. if you're looking for the original Toothless and Astrid, there's that scene where Stoic the Vast has got the Armada together and they're all about to leave Burke Harbor and sail off in search of the dragons. And as it, it's, it's when they've got Toothless chained inside of that longboat. And uh-huh. all of the brave men and women of the village are in the boats and they're going off to, on this dangerous mission. And they cut to the people who remain behind and there's sort of the wise woman of the village. You, you've seen her. She's this little short gnarled woman and she's got yes, sort of yes. class. On either side of her is a boy and a girl. And that's the original Hiccup and Astrid. Wow. So they screen it. I guess Burke, as we see it in the movies, is the version that that Hastings put together. Yeah, I mean, he said that a lot of the character design, I mean, besides the the ones that they aged up, they Mm -hmm. had to stick with. Obviously, Chris Sanders came in and designed Toothless because that is the most Chris Sanders-looking character (laughs) in the world. Toothless is supposed to be a combination of a Black Panther and a salamander, and and very feline in, in sort of the way it moves. And I guess the idea was they had to increase the size of the dragon because they wanted Hiccup to be able to, to ride, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, they screened this version and then uh, I guess Katzenberg went home and had a kind of panic attack and called Chris Sanders, mm-hmm. who was working on the Crudes at that point, which was an Ardman project, which we, I think, talked about uh, when we were talking about Early Man. Yep. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll jump off of Crudes and handle this. Uh, there's a release date in 15 months, but the only way I'll do it is if I can bring on Dean. And Dean said he was sitting in Portland, sort of twiddling his thumbs, and he said, sure, I'll come back, and came back and sort of fell in love with this world, and he's been sort of presiding over it for 12 years, I think, at this point, which is just insane. Oh, I agree. And it just, when Dean was up in the Pacific Northwest, he was trying to get some live-action films going. In fact, what was it, The Banshee and Finn McGee? Yeah, he sold two movies to Disney and one movie to Universal, and he said... I actually asked him about it today, and he said all of them sort of died because the previous regime had greenlit it, and then the next sort of corporate overlords did not agree. And the two movies that he was going to make for Disney were Nina Jacobson uh, Mm -hmm. movies. Mm -hmm. And so when she got pushed out, those kind of faltered, and the same thing happened with... uh, with Sightings, which was his, the last live-action movie he was trying to do for Universal. Mm-hmm. That's what he was working on. I think he said he turned in the fourth draft, and he knew that the movie was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's very sad. Uh, Peter Hastings, yes, they, they took him off the project, but there, there were no hard feelings. In fact, he's actually been hard at work at uh, DreamWorks Television Animation for a while. He did Kung Fu Panda, Legends of Awesomeness, and he's he's been working on the epic adventures of Captain Underpants. So... This didn't work. Go work over there for us. Now to double back to Dean, and how did he talk about this one? Because it it must have been strange to finally be able to put a cap on this thing. It's so funny because I talked to him about so many other things that Mm. we didn't really get to talk about How to Train Your Dragon 3. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I actually was talking to him about all this other stuff, including 
I actually asked him about his his years at working with Don Bluth. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, wow, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He said he was he worked really hard on those movies, but they were just totally incoherent on a narrative level. And that Bluth sort of was lording over too many aspects of the process mm-hmm. and couldn't see the the sort of storytelling faults of the movies that they made together. But anyway, I asked him, you know, there's a lot of like love themes in this How to Train Your Dragon 3 and Dean is a, a gay man. Mm-hmm. And he talked a little bit about, you know, the character that was implied to be gay in the last movie. Mm-hmm. Craig Ferguson's character. You remember he says, there's a reason I never got married, you Mm. know, that and something else. And Mm -hmm. he says that, you know what, he sort of, he feels like that's a very inclusive moment that he's, he's following his truth and none of the other Vikings are kind of judging him and that, you know, that that's still very much an important part of this third movie, which I thought was really, really nice to hear. Okay. Very much looking forward to this one again, because I have such great affection for the first one. And again, you're right. The second one... There's great chunks in it. There's, there's good stuff. And it does kind of redeem itself, right? Please tell me that. Yeah, I mean, you'll you'll get an emotional follow-through. But he actually talked about the original version of 2, which mm-hmm. was that Kate Blanchett was going to be bad the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it was more, he said, he, she wasn't responsible directly for Stoic's death, mm-hmm. but they had a fight. She and uh, Hiccup had a fight. Mm-hmm. And her basic philosophy was like, your idea is that humans and dragons are going to coexist. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I'm going to take these dragons and leave. Mm-hmm. And basically, after a test screening, one of the producers said to him, listen, you've got to know your audience, and you mm-hmm. made a movie where Toothless fights his mother, and mm-hmm. then she takes all the dragons and leaves. No kid is going to understand that. Mm-hmm. So you got to go in and, and change it around. So... That's what that's what ended up happening. It was just a little too harsh. I mean, basically what you said was that it was just a little too heavy for, for the younger audience. I don't know if he talked about, you know, supposedly when Dean came down from Portland and met with Chris on the Glendale campus at DreamWorks, and they basically took Peter's film apart and were separating into things they liked and things they wanted to save and things they wanted to reuse. And what they realized was that the film's beginning where the 8th century Vikings are coexisting with the dragons and it's this wonderful place. It's like, no, that's where the movie ends. It shouldn't begin there. Right. They should be battling. And that's what makes it that much more compelling. The Toothless and Hiccup are the ones who bridge the gap and and become the people who lead the way. But I guess Dean only after the fact read the books and came across that line that, you know, when I was a boy, you know, there were dragons. And, okay, now I know where I'm going. Now I know where my end is, because obviously the way that character's talking, the dragons are gone. So where have the dragons gone? And you're going to find out on February 22nd. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. <laughs> okay, now now you mentioned uh, just this kind of a throwaway in there, the the Ardman thing about early man and the crudes and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. And on our, our previous episode, where we were talking about the uh, grand success, that wonderful book about uh, the history of Ardman Studios, that uh-huh. there was this moment where Disney was trying to get Wallace and Gromit to host the a journey into imagination ride and and you would ask me to drill down into that crud so uh, that's how i spent my afternoon drew well you were sitting talking with dean i was sh- shoveling down into this so after we get back from the commercial break we we have uh, the story of of how we almost had a wallace and gromit 
version of Journey into Imagination. And we're back. When, again, did your family first get Depcot? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that the original Journey into Imagination was there. Horizons was there. Living Seas was there. All of the kind of original stuff was still there. But I'm not sure what year. Okay, but you saw the 80s versions, right? You saw, you know. Oh, yeah. Jim, when I close my eyes at night, that's where I am transported to the 80s Epcot. Wow. (laughs) If I were transported to the 80s version of Epcot, you know, every night, I would wake up screaming. Jim, come on. Did you ever see the Simpsons episode where they have to go to Epcot because there's like a parent-teacher conference there? And I totally agree with Homer. All right. Homer looks out the window (laughs) of the plane and literally says, oh, God, it's even boring to fly over. (laughs) Not an Epcot thing. I miss the Centorium. I miss, uh, you know, I miss it all. Oh, God, Drew. Okay, well, <laughs> let's get started then. Okay, so one of the things you must miss then is, uh, what is it? Magic Journeys, the original 3D movie. Uh, that yeah. that made it for opening day, the uh, October 1st, 1982. The actual Journey to Imagination ride didn't open until March 3rd, 1983. There were some technical issues. It wasn't reliable enough, but it finally did get open. In September of 84, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells come through the door, and they have a mandate. They have to move the Mouse House into the mainstream. In order for the Disney to really start making some money, and they have to make some money because they had just spent all that money paying off green mailers, you know, to, to you know, get the, the Boskies away from the, 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 the Saul Steinbergs and all that away from the company. So they had to make you know, movies, theme park attractions, you know, that, that appeal to a far broader audience. So February 1986, Magic Journeys uh, closes to make way for Captain EO, which was uh, supposed to open... In the spring of that year, but the production falls behind schedule because of things like, you know, originally it's like we only have 40 effect shot. Oh, did I say 40? I meant 140. We have Francis Ford Coppola get all of the footage that he shot. They actually in post have to shrink in the size of the frames because Disney executives are a little concerned about the number of times Michael grabs his crotch. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, in fact, watch the shots where it's like, wow, that's an interesting close-up of Michael. You know, I can't even see below the waist. There's a reason. But anyway, budget because of that goes from 11 million to 15 million to 17 million to ultimately 20 million, which for that time on a cost per minute basis made Captain EO the most expensive movie in Hollywood history. September 1986, Captain EO opens in Epcot. A week later, it opens at, at Disneyland Park. So now we jump ahead seven years to August of 1993 where the Los Angeles Police Department opens an investigation against Michael Jackson. A 13-year-old boy, Jordy Chandler, suggests that certain things happened. In January of 1994, Michael Jackson pays the Chandler family $23 million to basically go away. And meanwhile, the Disney company is like, that ain't good. And so July of 1994, Captain EO closes at Epcot Center. Just a few months later, the Los Angeles Police Department closes its criminal investigation of Michael Jackson. But here's the Disney company, and it's just sort of like, that may have been a mistake. Though, 
it pales to the mistake that Disney almost made. We've talked previously about the first attempt at making a Mary Poppins sequel, haven't we? No, we have not. What oh. was the first attempt? Oh, oh, this comes from Brian Sibley, by the way. Wonderful writer. Basically, Brian had befriended P.L. Travers. And P.L. Travers, at this point in your life, is a, a fairly old, crotchety lady. I mean, if you remember from Saving Mr. Banks, just imagine, you know, that only 30, 40 years older. And Brian gets her talking about the original movie from 64, and she warms to the idea of making a sequel. So Brian reaches out to Disney Studios and says, hey, she's thinking about authorizing making a sequel. And Disney's like, go, ooh, ooh. You know, and so Brian is working with P.L. Travers to develop a film. As they move along with the drafts and the notes, Brian slips these to executives at Disney, and they like, we like this part, we don't like that part. And... And they get really far along, Drew. Somewhere on the line, Brian breaks down the entire movie. And it's weird that the movie that's out today does feature a, a number of the same elements. Uh, mind you, it's still the Banks family and the children, but sort of like the Broadway musical, there's a, a crisis at the bank and you know that sort of thing. But she is adamant about, I, I like Julie Andrews' performance, but we, I, I just, Dick Van Dyke cannot come back. Sibley flies out to Hollywood. I don't know if this was Katzenberg or which executive he sat down once having lunch with. And they were like, God, we love the treatment and we love the ideas. In fact, for example, to get around the fact that Dick Van Dyke could not be in the movie, instead of Bert, there was a character called Bart, who was Bert's brother and sold ice cream in the park. <laughs> But here, they get to the point where it's just sort of like, okay, we're talking casting now. And it's like, quick question. Could you feel out, Pamela, about does Bart have to be white? And it's like, what? Well, you know, <laughs> well, he's supposed to be Dick Van Dyke's brother. I'm assuming he'd also have to be Caucasian. Well, why would you ask that? It's like, well, Michael Jackson has expressed an interest in making a movie for Walt Disney Studios. And we just think that if we would have paired Julie Andrews with Michael Jackson, who at that time was the biggest pop star in the, the, the entire world, you know, it's like, oh, my God, we will make money hand over fist. And, and now just imagine we jump ahead to 2019 and and that movie actually got made. And so you're looking through your stack of films to entertain the family tonight. And it's like, hmm, should I pull out the Mary Poppins Returns with Michael Jackson? <laughs> Especially, you know, on the heels of what just screened at Sundance. In fact, when, yeah. when is yeah. that supposed to show on HBO? Uh, HBO actually announced that it will be on in March, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Well, those of you who love Captain EO, okay. you know, I, I know. I'm, I'm literally counting down the seconds until my enjoyment of Captain EO can just be completely obliterated by this documentary. Because I know it's going to be terrible. I mean, it's a four-hour documentary. And people said in the middle of it that they were coming out of the theater looking sick. Okay, so obviously this is the Walt Disney Company, you know, looking at that. Well, maybe we, you know, if we're going to do something to go back into the Magic Eye Theater, maybe we need to do something that doesn't revolve around people who grab their crotch. So right. what they end up doing is they default to the Honey, I Shrunk franchise, which when that first opened in theaters in 89 and 
was the surprise hit, though, if you, again, if you talk with people at the studio, it wasn't a surprise because it was paired with the first standalone Roger Rabbit short, Tummy Trouble, and that artificially boosted the box office. In fact, can you believe it? That was the fifth highest grossing film in 89? You know, it was on TV last night on one of the channels, and that movie holds up really well. It also made me long for a... Walt Disney Company, where they would just put out movies and not every movie had to be a giant event tied to some IP. They would just put out these weird little movies that were really charming and fun. Joe Johnson directed that thing, and the very next thing he directed for Disney was The Rocketeer. I mean, he... Yeah, what a back-to-back triumph. And and James Horner's score for, for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is just unbelievable. When that hit, Disney thought for sure, it's like, ooh, we've got a franchise. And again, remember, these are Paramount guys who, you know, just sort of like, you know, we franchise anything. So they immediately turned around and copywrote names for five and six different sequels. And they listed them in a Wall Street Journal article about the same period. So they, the original plan was, you know, they were going to choose from this set of titles and go forward with development. There was Honey, I Made the Kids Invisible or Honey, I Sent the Kids to the Moon. Honey, I Xerox the kids. And my personal favorite, again, because of Nova the Wonder Dog, is (sighs) Honey, I Switched Brains with the Dog. Wow. That is crazy. Those sound like 60s, like, Kurt Russell, you know, computer war tennis shoes style. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Jumping ahead, April 1997. Captain EO, even after... The Los Angeles police investigation and paying off the, the, the family $23 million. It, it's not till April of 1997 that Captain EO closes at Disneyland Park. It, supposedly, it stayed open for those additional two and a half years because Jackson's principal lawyer, Burt Fields, who was this notorious pit bull, supposedly sort of reached out to Disney and said, that has to stay open because if you close it, that suggests my client was guilty and i will sue the walt disney companies for damages to michael's professional reputation and so they had to keep it open the entire time the los angeles police were investigating and then just for good measure they kept it open a couple of years after that and the only reason they shut it down was because they had that you know the new new tomorrowland in 1998 uh, october of 1998 journey to imagination shuts down for rehab during this period and And this is the period where Disney is starting to shoehorn characters into the park. It's like, wouldn't you have gone with a, you know, a smart Disney character? Wouldn't you have gone with, say, I mean, at this point, DuckTales is on in the Disney afternoon. So you could have grabbed Gyro Gear Loose there. Or you could have gone all the way back to Professor Ludwig von Drake from the Disney Wonderful World of Color. But but no, Disney goes a different way. And as we mentioned on the last show... Back in March of 1994, The Wrong Trousers wins the Academy Award for Best Animated Short. In the, in the spring of 1994, they reach out to Ardman in a three-picture deal and mention that, you know, we'd really love to bring these characters into the park. And they walk them through the idea of, what if we were to do a Wallace and Gromit show as part of the UK pavilion? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, and during this period is when they're trying to figure out what to do about updating the Journey into Imagination show. Because it's a 12-minute long ride through, and people want something zippier. And again, when you look at the name of what the show became, uh, Journey into Your Imagination, the conceit was that they were going to insert you into somebody else's head. And 
One version was Michael Jordan. Another version, Gromit was going to insert you into Wallace's brain. And I'm very into this idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it would have been cool. But the downside is, November of 1997, the Kodak Company, original sponsor of Epcot, the terms of that contract said that every 10 years, if you're a sponsor of a Future World Pavilion, you have to pay to upgrade the exhibits, the show, the ride shows, and attractions of the park. Now, Disney gave Kodak a pass because obviously they paid for the production of Captain EO. And, you know, they're the ones who, when it went from $11 million to $20 million, you know, patiently stood there and took it. So Disney gave them a pass. But now it's five years later and it's like, okay, we really have to do something about this. And Kodak comes back and says, we've been laying off people for a decade. We've been downsizing and we're about to do our biggest layoff we've ever done in the history of the company. We're going to lay off 10% of our workforce, tens of thousands of people are going to be out of work. And it would be a PR nightmare if during the period where we're laying off people, we're throwing millions of dollars at the Walt Disney Company so they can update a theme park ride. So it's like, we want to honor the contract and we've been good sports, you know, the rest of the time. I mean, you know, for example, they, they also helped out with the funding for the production of um, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Interesting side note, Eric Idle tells uh -huh. this really crazy story about how he got cast as Nigel Channing in that film. Oh, yes. I think I've heard this story before, but go ahead. Say it again. He's sitting at a restaurant in Hollywood and Marcia Strassman walks in the door. As you do, you know, when you work in Hollywood and you're an actor, it's like, what are you working on? And Marcia goes, well, I was supposed to be shooting this new theme park movie for Disney, but Raul Julia, who was supposed to play this Nigel Channing guy in the movie, he called in sick today. And it turns out he really did call in sick because the poor guy had stomach cancer and later died that same year in October of 1994 of a stroke, you know, keying off of. He got he got sick in, in South America or something. Do you remember that? The, yeah, well, that's, that's where it started. In fact, that's the saddest part of the story that there's that video game movie that he made. Oh, yeah, Street Fighter. Supposedly, he was making Honey, I Shrunk the Audience and Street Fighter because, A, he wanted to be in a theme park for his kids, and, B, he wanted to be in a movie that was based on a game that his kids made or kids liked. And I think everybody who's seen Street Fighter, you know, I mean, you just look at the guy and it's like, wow, he really doesn't look good. Yeah. But he still gives a, a great performance. But anyway, uh, getting back to... Eric hears this and it's like, he says, well, I'm not doing anything this week. And Marsha picks up her phone and calls Randall Kleiser, who was the director of uh, not only Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, he actually directed the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids sequel before that, Honey, I, I Blew Up the Baby. And the very next day, Eric's on the set as Nigel Channing. But anyway, okay, so we get that version of Journey into Your Imagination that opens in October of 1999, and it's universally panned. Everybody hates it. So it closes October 1st of 2001, opens one year later, Journey into Imagination with Figment, and again, let's give credit here where credit is due, the late, great David Mumford. I want to say this is the last thing he worked on for Imagineering before. Again, he, he was taken far too young due, due to illness. But David had read 
all of the guest complaints. And it's like, where's Figment? And he literally went to the warehouse where they had pulled all of the AA figures, the Figments, and piled them up and then proceeded to walk through the building. And it's like, okay, so we could put a Figment here and we could put a Figment <laughs> there. And then at this point, I want to say Billy Barty was still alive, but now his voice had pretty much deteriorated. So interesting, they reached out to Dave Goles, the gentleman who does Gonzo, and had him voice all the tracks. That opens uh, October of 2002. Then in June of 2009, Michael Jackson dies from an overdose of propofol. January of 2010, Honey, I Shrunk closes the Disneyland Park, and February of that year, we get the tribute version of Captain EO. And then in May, uh, Honey of Shrunk closes at Epcot. And then in July, we get, again, the tribute version of Captain EO. And the tribute version of Captain EO only closed at Disneyland in January of 2015. And March of 2015, the theater starts showing Tomorrowland, the Brad Bird movie, or, or the teaser scene of the the 1964 sequence from that movie. I'll give you some news that people don't know Mm -hmm. that for the 60th, they were going to play every single 3d movie that had been in that theater in like six week chunks. And this was ready to go because when I was working at Disney, they Mm -hmm. were talking to me about how they were going to announce this, Mm -hmm. how we were going to support it on the blogs, but it was going to go magic journeys, captain EO, and Honey, I Shrunk the Audience in mm-hmm. like three month increments or whatever throughout the year of the 60th as a way of getting people over into that side of the park. And why do you so suppose that didn't go forward? Because again, I mean, we're, we're talking about March uh, 2015. We've got the Tomorrowland preview. And mind you, by November, the theater's now showing Star Wars Path of the Jedi, you know, out ahead of the the opening of The Force Awakens. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there would have been a six-month period there where they could have, in fact, done that. Oh, I I was so pumped. Yeah, I was going to end with The Path to the Jedi. That was going to be, like, the last sort Mm -hmm. of part of it. And, yeah, I I don't know. I guess it was just a money thing. I mean, they had the prints. Everything was ready to go. Mm -hmm. And it just could not... They couldn't get it to come together. But I was really excited about being able to revisit all of those movies in that theater. Because now, right today, if we went to, to Disneyland, I think it's still a Wreck-It Ralph preview movie or something. Yeah. You know? Anyway. Now, speaking of animated features and showing up in that space, been some very interesting rumors since 2015 about Inside Out showing up at the Imagination Pavilion. In fact, these actually started back in March of that year, a, a full three months before Inside Out was in theaters. With Flower and Garden, they actually had what they called an emotion garden out at the outermost borders of uh, the future world uh, imagination building that took its cues from that Pete Doctor movie. And December of 2015, we saw what a lot of people interpret as sort of a trial balloon floated. We saw the Disney and Pixar short film festival at, oh, in the, God. you know. Well, you know, but but for me, you know, the fact that you could go in there and watch La Luna or For the Birds on the Big Screen, along with Get a Horse, you know, especially in Florida where it it's July, it's like walking on the surface of the sun to go in and get some air conditioning and see that was great. That's and, true. And then in July of 2017, we saw La Luna and For the Birds swapped out and Get a Horse was then paired with Feast and Piper. 
November of 2017, John Lasseter uh, is forced to take a leave of his absence from Pixar. We all know why. And then in June of 2018, we saw Pete Docter named as the new chief creative officer of Pixar Animation. Now, when you take that job, one of the, the principal parts of that job is you become the principal creative advisor for your animation studio for WDI. In fact, right. I, my understanding is Jennifer Lee is, is occupying the same role over at Walt Disney Animation. And you have that wonderful story. Now, now was it two years ago or three years <laughs> ago when you were on the Grand Central Creative Campus? Uh-huh. And you bumped into or you saw a doctor out in the hall? Oh, yes, that's right. I was actually at the Disney Toon Studios building. Ah, okay. Yeah, and I was um, prepping for a Comic-Con panel that I hosted mm-hmm. um, at Comic-Con 2016. Okay. That was about animators who also had comic book projects. It mm-hmm. was put on by Walt Disney Animation Recruiting. Mm-hmm. And while I was there... Pete walked by and one of the animators who had known him for a long time ran after him and said, and he came back into the room and said, oh, you know, Pete's here shadowing John. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going to the meetings and checking in on projects and this and that. So, yeah, that was a that was a long time coming, I feel like. Yeah. And January 2006, when the Walt Disney Company buys Pixar for seven point four billion dollars. Remember when that was real money, Drew? <laughs> you know, it's like, what that's a pocket change. Yeah, the t- tenth of what they paid for this Fox's television and film assets. But literally a year later, January 26, 2007, Disney holds a press conference down at, at Walt Disney World for the Year of a Million Dreams, and right there they mentioned that you know oh we're building toy story midway mania disney's hollywood studios and disney's california adventure and that project started off as mickey's midway mania then the characters and the the film that 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 was being built around got swapped out because john lasseter directed the two first two toy story movies and they wanted to make the new boss happy and then between Toy Story, the hotel, Toy Story, the musical. Just there are no less than 10 different Toy Story or Cars related projects that got greenlit for the parks between 2007 and 2017 when John went out the door. And Pete Doctor directed up and John took a leave of absence in November of 2017. By December of 2017 suddenly walt disney world entertainment was going oh you know the flights of wonder show at walt disney world we're changing that we're we're redoing that as the up the great bird adventure show and and who directed up drew well that would be one pete doctor yeah and obviously um (laughs) good god that that bird show is the worst thing in the world here's a fact that's going to horrify you drew because you and i saw this in november yes picture in the park event okay that was the improved version, all right? Oh, that in August of of last year, they Disney actually hired a comic. I, I can't get the name of who came in and did this to overhaul the show because evidently the version that was debuted in April was so terrible and got so many guest complaints that they brought in an outside writer to try to improve the gags and, and make it flow better. So so that was... that was uh, the- Try harder is what my recommendation would be. You know, but later this year, we'll see uh, as part of the Pixar Pier project at Disney's California Adventure, 
We're going to see the Inside Out Emotional Whirlwind ride debut. And, and I think I've, I've mentioned previously that I, I like the earlier name for the show, The Mood Swings. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. I don't know what happened there. I will be shocked if we see more Monsters, Inc. shows coming in. Likewise, Stronger Presence for Up and, and that sort of thing. But on the flip side, uh, Pete Docter is a huge theme park geek. I mean, I know John was a Jungle Cruise boat driver, but Pete is theme park crazy. I think Tony Baxter was telling me a story about him taking Pete on an after-hours tour of the park, and they spent hours in the garage at the Indiana Jones Adventure because he was just fascinated by the technology they were using. So I'm kind of hoping that it's not going to be John Lasseter revisited where we're just going to see Monsters, Inc. up and Inside Out-based attractions. But on the other hand, if they go to Journey into Imagination and they decide to redo the Journey into Imagination with Figment ride with the Inside Out characters, look, Figment was already in Inside Out. I like, was going to say, yeah, there's there's a precedent. Yeah. It is not out of the realm of possibilities because in Inside Out, before they're getting on the, uh, the train of thought, mm-hmm. there, there is sort of a pile of stuff, and in that stuff is a portrait of Figment. There we go. Um, there we yeah, go. so I wonder if they would interact with it. But you've said before that, Part of the idea was maybe to do it as a 3D movie and leave the attraction alone. Supposedly, the Disney Pixar Short Film Festival was, a, again, a trial balloon to like, okay, would people, how are people comfortable finding Pixar characters in this space? And But again, that that's honestly the more affordable fix. When David came in in 2002 and did the, the redo, of Journey into Your Imagination. And he was working with a very minimal budget. He was working with AA figures that had been built back in 82, 83. And it's just, he did the best with what he had, which was a dollar forty-five and a bunch of coat hangers and folding tables. That's why the ride looks the way it is. And when you look across the way and the money that's being spent on Ratatouille or the money that's being spent on Guardians of the Galaxy, imagination is this wasted opportunity and it would it would be kind of cool to have them go in there and do a decent ride with the inside out characters in a way that involve figment maybe that'll be it maybe we will get to find you know all of us climb on the train of thought and get to experience that world but now speaking of trains you have places to get you have things to do i do you know so, so we should shut this down but before we close out here i mean among the things you have to find time to fit in is is working on your your wonderful Mission Impossible podcast, Light the Fuse. Yes. Which are we closer to revealing who your mystery guest is? Or? We are closer to it, but we are not doing it yet. But I can say that by the time this comes out, I think both of our episodes where we talk to Academy Award winning cinematographer Robert Elswit will be up, um, and those are amazing. Especially the second episode, he tells the most hilarious story about There Will Be Blood and him watching it again for the first time many years later that will have you in stitches. Uh, It's really, really wonderful. I cannot wait. Okay. And on my side of the fence, I get the podcast I do with Lentesta Disney Dish. I've got the podcast I do with Aaron Adams, the Marvelous Disney Show. I've got Looking at Lucasin with Dan Z. I've got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse and 
a Disney merch podcast, which are, should be have debuted by now. With who? Who is that with? Now uh, I'm getting jealous here. If you can believe it, my ex-wife. Which oh, adds a, boy! <laughs> which adds a delightful element. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so look for that one, folks, and, and hope that there'll be a second one. <laughs> for now, on, on behalf of Mr. Taylor, thank you and good night. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.